On a college campus, we are privileged. Our worries aren't about if the lights are going to turn on when we flip the switch or if the water bill has been paid. Protections against the outside world are provided to us. We get masks, we get tests, we get a flashy student health building. Even when we go home, our zip code protects most of us from these threats. But make no mistake, these are threats to our very existence and livelihood. We are dealing with two worldwide crises right now. Crises that fall upon the shoulders of you and me alike. What exactly are these crises? How does my mask relate to environmental racism? How does my zip code impact the COVID-19 mortality rate of those in the community around me? We're here to answer these questions. Joined today by Dr. Kay Jowers and Dr. Mike Bergen. Welcome to Operation Climate. My name's Catherine, and along with Matthew and Natasha, we are so excited to bring you this episode. Let's get started. When considering how pollution and climate change affect different communities, we often look to environmental racism. Environmental racism entails that certain racial groups are disproportionately targeted by policies that disadvantage them through polluted air, water, and land. In the 1970s and 80s, the term environmental justice came out of the majority black town of Afton, North Carolina, when residents fought against the state putting a toxic landfill in their community. Environmental justice encompasses both socioeconomic and geographical disadvantages. It primarily shows itself through racist practices that target black and brown communities. The term BIPOC is typically used when referring to communities of black, indigenous, and people of color. Multiple studies have shown that these BIPOC communities are exposed to higher levels of particulate matter, dangerous aromatic chemicals like lead and benzene, and other forms of pollution. We spoke to Dr. Jowers to discuss environmental racism and environmental justice. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about the Planet Project that you're working on and more about the environmental justice lab that you co-direct here at Duke? Environmental Justice Lab really centers around environmental inequality and inequity and looks at various ways that we can address those inequities and injustices that are primarily experienced by people of color and low-income communities. And um, through the Planet Project, we were engaging with decision makers around the ethics of decision-making and how sometimes political expediency makes it difficult to consider all of the different issues that come up when we're dealing with environmental injustice. And in the environmental justice lab, we do computational social science work alongside students to address empirical research questions that EJ communities really need answered. One of the goals of this episode was to understand what environmental racism truly is. Jowers offered a few words about this topic and how social inequality and environmental racism are interconnected. Yeah, so the pandemic has had both its own direct impact and has been a crisis that has highlighted injustices and inequities that have always existed the COVID-19 infection rates and death rates go up in areas with high air pollution. And when you consider that our uh, presidential administration in the United States has rolled back a lot of environmental regulations around air pollution and other environmental standards, we've 
rolled back a lot of the protections that would have uh, mitigated those direct impacts. Pandemic has also highlighted pre-existing inequalities that we see where low-income communities, communities of color are disproportionately exposed to environmental hazards. And those environmental hazards could be things outside. It could be uh, factories, manufacturing facilities, highways, other land uses that are co-located in close proximity to neighborhoods that are predominantly low income or made up of people of color. But there's been disinvestment in housing and neighborhoods that are lower income and occupied by people of color, such that there's a big disparity in the quality of the houses that people live in. So um, they could be more exposed to indoor air pollutants and indoor hazards from lead paint in older homes. There could be also uh, asthma triggers in um, homes and other sorts of environmental exposures. Now that we've zoomed out in a general sense, let's now focus on how this is playing out at Duke and in Durham. Here's what she had to say about gentrification and inequality in Durham and in North Carolina. The role of gentrification is something that we're really looking at, um, particularly in the EJ lab and with the work that I do. Uh, we really look at how many people are displaced by gentrification pressures and when they are displaced, what sorts of neighborhoods do they end up in and how does their uh, ability to protect themselves from environmental exposures change. So are they moving to places that are even more polluted than the one that they lived in? How much housing insecurity and uh, energy poverty increases as the, even if they're able to stay in their neighborhood, as the houses around them are renovated and redeveloped and the property values go up. And so the tax values go up. And so if they own their home, their tax bill has gone up and, um, if they rent, their landlord's tax bill has gone up. So maybe their rent has gone up. So as that burden increases, are they then less able to pay for energy, water, quality food, all of the other things that make uh, that are, are really human rights to have adequate housing and um, access to, to water. So um, it's something we're exploring, but it, it certainly seems to be the... Um, pressures of gentrification are pushing people who are already living at the margins further into those margins. What does environmental inequality look like in Durham compared to national averages? Yeah, so one of the things that gets tricky about thinking about environmental inequality is it can be so many different things depending on where you live. So uh, environmental justice as a, a principle and a movement really started around waste and the location of landfills and particularly hazardous waste landfills. And so in many communities, it was that, it was that these big landfills were being located nearby. In other communities, it becomes an issue of there is a you know, a, a power plant that has co-pollutants and, and greenhouse gases that are an issue. And um, some, it could be that the land on which that neighborhood is situated was land that um, was historically undesirable and um, floods a lot, and they may not have the infrastructure to deal with the flooding. And so the, the tricky part about your question is environmental justice and environmental inequalities are very community specific. That is a little gloomy, but Dr. Jowers did offer some advice for handling the pandemic in Durham based on her experiences with environmental policy. On more of a local level, 
what are some things local governments can do to curb the spread of COVID-19 in these high-risk communities that have worked for environmental policy? We started modeling that and other moratoria around not cutting people's electricity off, not cutting off their water in the middle of the pandemic, and found that those are sometimes even more important than the um, the mask restrictions and other the stay-at-home orders, that having those uh, policies in place that ensure that people have access to water, access to electricity, and adequate housing, that that slowed the, the infection rate more so than some of the other things. Not that those other policies aren't also important, but that maybe the key policies to keep in place are those that provide that kind of security. Just to reiterate, Jowers emphasized that providing basic necessities like electricity and housing are crucial to stemming the spread of COVID-19. This goes to show that a one-dimensional outlook is not constructive for solving issues like environmental racism or the pandemic. Finding the intersectionality between the issues is the best way to approach them. It's clear that we can't acknowledge climate change without talking about its social implications, especially for BIPOC. Similarly, COVID-19's true impact can only be understood in the context of environmental inequality, namely air quality and air pollution. As it stands today, air pollution is the cause for one in every six deaths worldwide. Air pollution by humans, including nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and fine particulate matter have been linked to a greater likelihood to die from coronavirus. According to a recent study conducted by the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, there is an 8% increase in mortality from COVID-19 infection for every one microgram per cubic meter of air pollution. We were joined by Dr. Mike Bergen to discuss the connection between COVID-19 and air quality. You'd be willing to elaborate on a little bit of your research at Duke and what kind of roles you've played and topics that you're interested in. Sure. My research is focused mostly on air pollution and its effects. And the effects I'm mostly interested in are how it influences climate, how it impacts human health, and also how it influences renewable energy. First, Bergen explained the effects of the pandemic on air quality in the U.S. and abroad. One thing it appears that is that is really interesting is that the COVID period, you know, going pre-COVID, during COVID, it, it did not apparently reduce air pollution drastically within the U.S., at least for particulate matter. It didn't appear that there were drastic reductions. And um, it, it's, it's very interesting. I think, I think we've done a pretty good job of controlling uh, power plant emissions to uh, vehicles that are pretty low emitters and even to industries that have been, you know, fairly well controlled. So we didn't see huge dips in or improvement in air quality within the U.S. And of course, now we're sitting here in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and the air quality here is actually, it, it's, it's, we have very clean air. And, and I know this because we've been monitoring the air quality in Durham and around campus at Duke, and it's been very clean and we're watching it now and it's, it's still very clean. But then there are other places where uh, if you look around the world where uh, deaths due to air pollution are kind of the largest places like India, of course, China, and um, in, in developing places that have lots of industry and, and cars that are really high emitters in South America, places in South America would be like this. I think in some of these places, if we take India as, a, as an example, I think, uh, you know, in Delhi, they were seeing, you know, people were seeing blue skies for the first time in a very long time. So I think there were huge improvements in air quality in places where the air was really, really bad. And um, 
you know, so, you know, for example, if you look at a place like India, where huge decreases in traffic with, uh, you know, a relatively high emitting fleet, uh, industry was, um, closed down. Things like brick kilns were closed down that emit tons of pollution and, uh, probably way less power use, I would imagine. So I think we saw dramatic improvements in air quality in a lot of places, not necessarily in the U.S. While we take our air quality for granted at Duke, it is a crisis that must be collectively addressed around the world. After he explored the connections between climate change-induced air pollution and COVID-19 respiratory symptoms. Not 100% an expert on this, but, uh, you know, certainly air quality uh, does create, you know, respiratory stress and irritation and, and inflammation in the respiratory system. And I think, of course, uh, COVID does the same thing. Although air pollution improved greatly in India, uh, it was still at probably moderately unhealthy levels. And so the question would be in places like India, where the air pollution, maybe even though it decreased the state of moderately unhealthy levels, did it exacerbate COVID compared to here? While Bergen doesn't explicitly endorse that air pollution exacerbates COVID-19, studies have shown that communities of color tend to have the greatest levels of air and other forms of pollution, another factor in COVID-19 vulnerability. A key indicator of COVID-19 vulnerability is environmental quality, specifically air quality. We were really interested to see what he thought about how Duke students could address air pollution and improve air quality. Bergen had a few thoughts on this. Well, you know, um, I think one simple rule is just buy less stuff. We think of all the, the goods that we buy, you know, some of which are manufactured in the U.S., some of which aren't. And all those goods have energy use and air pollution uh, emissions associated with them. So I think, you know, first step is to buy the minimal amount of stuff as possible. <laughs> That's one thing I think. And of course, you know, I think um, using... Uh, transportation in a, an efficient, maybe minimal way to lower our carbon emissions. And of course, when you lower your carbon emissions, you lower the other emissions that come along with them. So, um, you know, I think sometimes it's, it's really uh, hard to envision uh, the pollution that we might be associated with everything that we have, you know, being at Duke and living in the RTP area and, and, you know, being relatively affluent people, you know, in the U S we use our, our energy use per capita is very, very high. Our municipal solid waste generation per capita is really, really high. And I think those are two things that each of us can kind of think a little bit about and try to minimize. And along with that comes uh, obviously less energy use and less pollutant emissions. Here, Bergen emphasizes the role that individuals can play in addressing climate change and therefore COVID-19. However, we must also know that being minimalist consumers will not fix either one of these crises. We must have a collective attitude shift in recognizing that there are corporations that take advantage of communities in North Carolina and around the world, exploiting their health and the environment in order to profit. Corporations like Duke Energy and Smithfield Farms are just a few of the many corporations that have been facing pushback from environmental justice groups for years. The current corporate structure places at-risk communities even more at risk than they already are. And they're the ones that are facing these crises head on. We had one final question for Dr. Bergen. How does climate change impact air quality and air pollution? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the obvious uh, influence that climate change has had on air pollution is these wildfires. And um, I think um, what, what you really look for when it comes to climate change are, are trends and things. So you need, you know, many years of seeing a trend. You know, what we're seeing in the U.S. certainly, you know, as a uh, the most obvious thing. 
uh, are these fires. And certainly these are, you know, I don't know when the, when the smoke goes away and the smoke clears, I think we'll get a chance to reflect on, uh, you know, looking at the hospital records and, you know, of course, the cost is going to have been substantial, just uh, the cost of the fires and replacing the houses and uh, displaced people and insurance and all that stuff. But the, the health effects, I think we'll get a better handle on. And, you know, I can imagine they're, they're pretty substantial. The intersection of environmental justice and COVID-19 comes full circle when looking at the data that has been compiled in the last few months. Specifically, one case study in Massachusetts analyzes why this connection exists. The results find that air pollution, a strong indicator of vulnerability to COVID-19, is especially bad in communities of color. This phenomena is not restricted to Massachusetts or the United States. The report references unusually high levels of mortality in communities worldwide with disproportionately bad air quality. This report is so important because it underscores the difference between environmental justice and COVID-19 in the U.S., as opposed to other countries. One of the reasons for the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on BIPOC communities is a disproportionate number of pre-existing health conditions present in the BIPOC population and unequal access to health care. The report also found that homeless communities were significantly more likely than the general population to contract COVID-19. To learn more about this report, please visit our website at bit.ly backslash Operation Climate. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Operation Climate. Make sure to subscribe to stay updated about future episodes. For more information on who we are, what we're doing, and a full transcript of this episode, visit bit.ly slash Operation Climate to learn more.